Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer, one of the elders at the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ, and I'd like to talk to you about one of the most common of all biblical words. I want to speak to you about sin. It's different from so many of the other words most commonly found in the scriptures. I'm thinking of words such as love, joy, comfort, salvation, peace, heaven, and so many others that simply by saying them seem to produce feelings of warmth and happiness within us. Sin is not that way. There is nothing beautiful or lovely in the word. When we hear the word spoken, when we read it upon the printed page, or when we utter it ourselves, it is simply harsh, cold, and lonely. This is especially true when a person comes to the point where they recognize that they must use that word with reference to themselves in application of their own life. In other words, I have sinned. That is a sentence that reeks with the stench of guilt and despair. I think of Joshua chapter 7 and verse 20 where we read, So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. He would shortly be put to death because of his sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, even as the accusing finger of Nathan the prophet pointed at David and said, You are the man, David responded in verse 13 by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. In truth, he would spend the declining days of his life paying for that sin. Again, I think of Matthew chapter 27 and Judas. In verses 3 and 4, we find, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourselves. Afterward, verse 5 tells us, And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Surely every honest man and woman has at some time in their life known the sorrow and the agony of having to admit the guilt of sin. It is interesting to note that the Bible speaks of sin in such a forthright, very matter-of-fact manner. God's word does not go to great lengths to try to prove the existence of sin. Its existence is simply an accepted fact. In the early chapters of the book of Genesis, it is there. In Genesis 4, verses 6 through 7, we read, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. When the coming of the Savior was being announced by the angel to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, the statement was made in verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Only a fool would ever dare to deny the reality of sin. But now, what exactly is sin? How is it committed? What is its nature? What are the consequences of it? Is there a remedy for it? These are questions that need to be answered, and that's what we want to do for the rest of our time in this episode. First of all, sin is literally defined as missing of the mark of perfection in the sight of God. We can equate it with aiming at a target and missing it completely. It is a failure to choose the right path when confronted with the choice of obedience or disobedience to God's will. In 1 John 3 and verse 4 we read, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is the law of God that determines what is right and what is wrong, and it has always been so. God's law reveals to man what he can and cannot lawfully do, think, or say. If a person refuses to abide by God's law, then he becomes a lawless man to the extent that he transgresses or disobeys that law. And my friends, that lawlessness is sin. Adam and Eve were lawless when they partook of the forbidden fruit. David was lawless when he took the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Thus, they were sinners. As we move a bit further in 1 John, we come to chapter 5 and verse 17. There John wrote, All unrighteousness is sin. It is important to understand something here. Righteousness is the character or quality of being right or just. Unrighteousness is the opposite of that. Now a person is guilty of unrighteousness when he or she fails to do that which is right and just. That comes about by failing to do that which God's word requires just as surely as it comes about by doing something that God's word prohibits. Again, understand that sin consists of doing that which is prohibited and also in refusing to do that which is commanded. James chapter 4 verse 17 tells us, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. We find in Psalm 119 verse 172 that all of God's commandments are righteousness. The person, man, or woman who is guilty of unrighteousness is a sinner. One other point I want to make about sin is found in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. In that passage, Paul wrote, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Simply put, if I do something believing it to be wrong and sinful, even as I do it, it is sin, even if it was harmless in and of itself. A very good rule to follow in this area is, if in doubt, don't do it. That pretty well defines what sin is. But now let's talk a little bit about the nature of sin. It's difficult to deal with something that we know little about. A point that must be made concerning sin is that it is so deceptive in so many ways. The Hebrew writer exhorted Christians with these words in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He wrote, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. 
but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think of a statement Peter made in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, where he wrote, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continue just as it was from the beginning of creation. Since a massive bolt of lightning does not come down out of the sky and strike a person dead every time they sin, a lot of people are deceived into thinking that they can sin with impunity and that they are escaping the consequences of their actions. What a vile deception that is. The time is coming when we are all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for our conduct. Certainly Paul's statement from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 is appropriate. He warned us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Yet another aspect of sin's nature is that it is so enslaving. There are obvious slaves of sin the alcoholics, the drug addicts, and so forth. But the enslaving nature of sin is not evidenced just by those types of individuals. How many people live a completely worldly life, totally carnal and given over to the flesh, thinking that happiness is found in those kinds of things and are being led around like a dog on a leash, thinking that that is where happiness is found? How terrible it is to be a slave and not even know it. Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 and verse 20 remove all doubt concerning the enslaving nature of sin. He wrote in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Verse 20 states, For when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. As I talk about the nature of sin, I'm trying to find words that would adequately describe it. The best that I can do are enormous and terrible. How in the world do you measure sin? How can we comprehend the enormity of anything which would require the precious blood of the Son of God, His only begotten, sinlessly perfect Son, as an atonement. Why did it have to be His Son? Why not a lamb? Why not some other man? Why not even an angel from heaven? Why did it have to be Jesus, in whom dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? Why the Lord? who was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Wasn't it because of the awful and terrible enormity of sin? Wasn't that the reason the Father turned from the Son on the cross? I believe in Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We must remember that those sins we commit and are so inclined to view as being little, minute, or insignificant, require the life of the Son of God, our blessed Lord Jesus, as the atoning sacrifice. How does a person adequately describe something that required Jesus to die as payment? Now about the consequences of sin. 
First of all, there is the fact of guilt. When we sin, we are guilty and separated from God. God has a law, and violation of that law results in separation from God. That truth cannot be made much clearer than it is in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Sin separates from God. Just suppose Noah had been without God when the flood came upon the earth. Where would you and I be? What if Daniel had been without God in the lion's den? Or think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had they been without God when they found themselves placed within the confines of the burning, fiery furnace. Consider the fate of those who will be without God in the day of judgment. Sin separates. In addition to the fact of guilt, there is the feeling of guilt. If a person has a tender heart, and has not been hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, there will be remorse of conscience. Again, we think of Judas. He returned to the chief priests and elders with the blood money and exclaimed, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Later, he hung himself. This was the result of a tormented conscience, which in turn was the result of his sin. Do you remember Peter and what happened immediately after he denied the Lord the third time? Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62. There we find, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. How awful it is to face a guilty conscience but how absolutely necessary. We must all understand that when we practice sin, we die. It is a spiritual death. Paul wrote about the time when sin entered into his life in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9 with these words, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Can you imagine that? To walk this world as it were, as one of the living dead? Oh, very much alive physically, but dead spiritually? What a state to be in. Again, from the book of Romans, this time's chapter 6 and verse 23, Paul wrote, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But now then, what about a remedy? With sin in existence and man under its condemnation because of our willingness to embrace it, all praise and thanksgiving should be rendered to the Almighty God for graciously providing a remedy, a plan of salvation, a scheme of redemption that has been provided for man's forgiveness. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we read the following, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. My friends, when those who had been bitten by the fiery serpents in the camp of the Israelites 
went to the brazen serpent and looked at it in obedience to God's command, they were physically healed. Numbers 21 tells us all about that. Today, when men have been bitten by sin, go to Jesus in obedience to God's command, they will be healed spiritually. But that obedience is necessary. We are told in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, that Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him. Those in the wilderness who refused to go and look at the brazen serpent died. Those today who have sinned and refused to obey the gospel of the Lord will be lost eternally. Consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, where Paul wrote, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Right now, all of us are either dead in sin or dead to sin. The question to ask is, where do you stand? The person that you look at in the mirror, is that person dead in sin or dead to sin? That's a question to consider. Thanks for listening.